It's Nick Jaina time. I'm Nick Jaina. I'm reading from my book, which is titled, Get It While You Can. Chapter 3 A couple weeks after getting seasick, I find myself with a unique opportunity, at least for a songwriter, to speak at a literary festival in Portland. I'm on a panel with the author, Nicholson Baker. He's exactly how you want your authors to be, full of insight and fascinating asides about William James. Afterwards, I invite him to have coffee with me and my friend Laura. The three of us sit outside the convention center on a concrete ridge while he squints at us in the sunlight. He's interested in our lives as musicians, even though Laura and I are both trying to be writers. I played the bassoon as a young man, he says, and I thought I would join the symphony and that would be my life, but I wasn't good enough. Do you still play, I ask? No, I haven't touched it in decades, he says. I find it a little baffling that you could play an instrument in your entire life, then one day sell it and never play it again. But I suppose not very many rock bands are looking for bassoonists. Yet there is this desire for preservation that runs through all his work. I've always had an urge to try to hold on to places and documents and buildings, he told the Paris Review in 2011. If his store went out of business when I was a kid, I'd have a horrified, grieving feeling. How could it be gone? What was the shopkeeper going to do now? I don't like when precious things slip through people's fingers, especially things that seem defenseless or under-celebrated like old newspapers, but also unheralded people who may have said sensible things at a certain time in history, but who were completely drowned out by other people. Or minor poets whose lives were instructive. Sometimes I'm astounded by the absence of sentimentality in other people. How can you not become attached to all the poignant scraps that flow through life? I tried to put the date on all my kids' drawings, thinking that'll help. But of course, you're trying to say something that's evolving. It isn't savable. After we finish our coffee, I give Nicholson directions on how to take the streetcar to get to his next function. I walk alone to my car, which isn't actually my car, but my friend Joe's, that I've borrowed for a few days while I use as my van to coordinate a film project. As I pull around the corner, I see Nicholson, exactly where I left him, waiting for the streetcar. I honk my horn and he turns my way, doing that, who, me, thing, pointing at his chest while I nod vigorously. He grabs his briefcase, runs through the traffic, and joins me in the car. Thank you, he says. I guess I could have ended up waiting there a while. After dropping him off at the Jupiter Hotel, I sit there for a moment, just idling, looking at the lingering Portland daylight. Deep in October, you get the feeling that any sunny day could be the last for a long while. Tonight there is a screening in Tacoma of a film I did the soundtrack for. Last night I played a similar screening in central Washington, driving back this morning for the literary festival. I think about Nicholson and his time with the bassoon. Maybe he appreciated the instrument so much that he was willing to let it go when he realized he wasn't a world-class bassoonist. Fuck it, I mutter, and get on the highway and drive to Tacoma. 
the turnout is small and I end up playing just two unamplified songs to about 15 people. I find myself thinking more than ever, these songs are old, I don't believe in them, or this kind of music, but I'm chained to it and I can't let go. I close with Cincinnati, whose last line is one of endless pining. All I want is to be with you in a hotel room in Cincinnati. God, that sounds so crude. While I'm putting my guitar back in the case, the people start filing out of the theater. Rick, the director, is giving me this look like, get out there, and I just give him a shrug. The aisle is too narrow for me to squeeze past them so I can open up my suitcase of CDs in the lobby. By the time I get out there, almost everyone has left and I only sell a few. As I pack up and get in my car, Rick shouts from across the street, Nick, you are a great songwriter, but you are a terrible businessman. Those words keep me awake as I drive the two hours back to Portland. I woke up at five this morning and won't get home until well after midnight. By the time I pull up in front of my apartment, I've driven nearly 500 miles, participated in a panel discussion, given a beloved author a ride down the street and played two songs to mostly empty theater. All I want to do is bury myself in sleep. I take one look at the two guitars in the back of my car and figure I'll just come out in the morning and get them. When I finally wake up and go outside, the back window of Joe's car is broken. My amp and my electric guitar are still there, but my Blue Ridge is gone. Some kid probably looked in and saw my stuff, and in a fit of inspiration broke the window and grabbed the case. If I'd had my van, no one would have seen the guitars through the tinted windows, but in Joe's little car, the guitar was all too visible. I rubbed my face just staring at the broken window. I've never cried over an object before. And then my phone begins to ring. It's my friend Megan, who lives in New Orleans, the friend who gave me my last name, the friend I called when I got out of a well in San Juan Bautista, having decided to become a musician. I've known her the exact amount of time that I owned my guitar. She wants to know if I could do a rather large favor by flying to New Orleans that week and driving a Penske truck of her sister's stuff to Sacramento. In any other circumstances, I probably wouldn't even consider it, but in the shock of my loss, I find myself saying yes. She buys me a plane ticket right then. And a few days later, I'm on a plane to New Orleans. This time, I have no guitar to write above. Chapter 4 My body and my unconscious mind saw the flood coming, even if I chose to ignore it. At the beginning of the year, while improvising music in the studio with some friends, I wrote a song called I Don't Want to Know. If surgery is certain, I don't want to know. If your titanic heart caves in, I don't want to know. If memory persists, if snipers hold the cards, I don't want to know. A few weeks after writing that song, I drove through Death Valley with my father. We had just passed 
Badwater Basin, which is also the lowest point in North America. And we had to slow down because we saw a man lying in the road up ahead. As we got closer, we saw that the man was holding a camera and taking pictures of a coyote just off the road. We slowed to a stop and looked out the window. The coyote was skinny and haggard and looked me right in the eyes, I thought. I made eye contact with a coyote. Now I am a coyote. All we had in the car were homemade brownies from my mom and some leftover lemon peel chicken from the Chinese restaurant the night before. Nothing that a coyote should be eating. We kept staring at each other. That brief connection at the bottom of the world felt like it lasted for years. I saw the desperation in his eyes. I'd have fallen in impossible love again, and the target of my desire told me on a long-distance phone call that what was never really happening was now over. I lay on my couch, feeling like I had a cinder block on my chest. I felt I'd been the victim of a string of tragedies I couldn't connect. I googled plural for crisis because neither crises nor crises sounded right. I left that page open in a tab on my computer. And when I came back to it, I was intrigued by the phrase, plural for crisis. What was that? A book? An album? Oh, right. It was my own inability to learn from mistakes. A month later, an energy worker named Tatiana waved her hands and whispered, tearing dark energy from me and shaking it into a bowl of water on the floor. She got the pain moving in me again. It was almost like she was working on a sprained ankle. Afterwards, I was able to feel emotions again, but most of what I felt was a crushing sadness. I would be talking to someone and find that my hand had crept under my jacket to clutch my heart as if to keep it from gushing blood everywhere. I'd go out to dinner with a nice girl, kiss her goodnight, get in my car, melt into tears. Tatiana told me that love was like a beam of light from a star. The star itself might die, but we would still see it going on forever in every direction. I'd always thought that love was more like a piece of newspaper on fire, which I'd have to keep transferring to other newspapers before it burned out. I was walking around like a child with a broken truck, showing it to everyone with a sad, expectant face, hoping someone would fix it. But the broken truck was my own heart, and I was just beginning to realize that it had been me more than anyone else who had broken it over and over. I went to a therapist named Mark, whose discipline was core energetics, which attempts to solve the issues of the mind by finding their manifestations in the body. I described the pain I felt as a stinging in my stomach. It made me think of someone cruelly poking a sea anemone in a tight pool. Mark asked if I'd ever felt this feeling before. I remembered a family trip to Lake Tahoe when I was seven. Another family with kids my age joined us. It was a sunny day, but I was afraid to play outside, and so I pretended I had a stomach ache so I could just be alone. Mark asked me if I had hated this seven-year-old version of myself. I said, of course not. But all my actions in the intervening years had indicated unconscious contempt for it. One day, Mark asked me if I knew about the coyote. At first, I thought he was putting me on like he'd gone through my phone and seen the photo I took in Death Valley. Eventually, I realized he was talking about the mythical coyote, the trickster, on the edge of the campfire. Coax him into the light, Mark told me, so he can't lure you into the darkness anymore. 
I told him that I was thinking about signing up for a 10-day meditation retreat, but that I probably wouldn't because it seemed too self-indulgent. He told me that resistance was just my ego's fear of dying and encouraged me to go through with it. My friend Mike asked me to play a song at his show at a piano repair shop where the stage was built on top of several pianos. Just to get on stage, you had to step on the keys and make a horrible sound. I spent the day writing a song on piano just for the show, a song about how everything I did seemed to defeat myself. Oh, hell. I know I shoot myself in the foot every day, I guess. At least I never put my foot in my mouth, because then I'd shoot my mouth out. Our world is built on miracles, and yet all around us, people are suffering. We see images of war-torn refugees and can identify that as suffering, but we are afraid to acknowledge the suffering in our own lives. We shouldn't be suffering. Our country is not in a civil war, and we have food to eat. Maybe some people are better at dealing with that suffering, or maybe they're just better at ignoring it. All I know is that I have to do something before I do something much worse. phone talking to my dad in Sacramento. Hi, dad. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, 
we just heard the chapter about us uh, taking a trip through Death Valley, and I described the moment we were, I think, on our way to the lowest place in Death Valley, which is the lowest place in North America, and there was a coyote crossing, and I just stuck my phone out and got a picture of it like looking straight at me, and I just remember that moment being very just um, unexpected connection with this wild creature. And I, for me, I thought a lot about um, what it'd be like to live in Death Valley and to be a coyote and to be scavenging. Um, it just seems like a really hard existence. <laughs> um, I was just wondering if you remember that moment or, or anything you remember from that trip? Well, I do. Uh, but, the, you know, the whole trip was pretty memorable. We were going down to... Uh, to watch a premiere showing of a movie that uh, you had done the music for, that Cement Suitcase. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. We saw a number of sites in Death Valley, and uh, yeah, we were going to the to the dry dry lake bed, which was the lowest point in the continental U.S. And I don't know if it was before we got to the lake bed or after it. We saw the coyote on the side of the road, and uh, you know. Stopped the car, got out, watched a coyote for a while, and you took a picture of it, and um, yeah, it was pretty cool. I mean, if you were a coyote, that would probably be one of the last places you would want to be trying to scrounge out a living is down in uh, down in Death Valley. I think the food sources are few and far between, but... Uh, well, maybe you get left alone by humans. I don't know. Maybe you have more space to stretch out. I'm sorry? Maybe you have more space to stretch out because there's not so many people there. There's definitely a lot of space to stretch out. <laughs> Coyotes are actually territorial, and he would have had a heck of a lot of territory. But, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, I mean, just a harsh environment, 125 or 30 in the summertime. and uh, But we were there in the springtime, and it was beautiful, and it was in the 70-degree range or so, and it was very nice. But... Uh, <clears throat> yeah, seemed, you, you, I don't know. I don't know what else to say about the case. He seemed like he wanted some food, and I wonder if people give them scraps or something. It seemed like, oh, I think I'm sure they do. He was kind of hanging around the highway, the road through the uh, through Death Valley. So yeah, that's. Um, I'm sure he depends on passersby for some handouts, and uh, yeah, but we didn't give him anything, did we? I don't think we had no. any. Well, when we had Chinese food and brownies, and it just didn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> Probably throw off his whole... in his regular diet now. Yeah, throw off his whole coyote thing. Yeah, the lowest point I thought was pretty dramatic. Walking out out on those plank boards out to the... several hundred yards out into the dry lake bed, and which is a little tacky somebody had marked on the rock on the on the shore of the dry lake bed as to what the sea level actually was right that was right, yeah. that was a little hokey but being out in that lake i'm sure they filmed some movies out there or whatever i mean it's pretty eerie feeling just this brilliant white sand salt sea salts all around you i mean it's pretty uh, pretty incredible uh, location yeah, it was kind of nice just to be at the absolute bottom and know that that was, can't get any lower than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
famous place. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Famous place. And then I remember we had a long discussion about sea level because it's the below sea level. And then <laughs> I, I was just wondering, how do you measure sea level if there's tides that are always going up and down and waves are coming in? Like, how do you know what sea level is? And I don't know if we ever got a very satisfactory Well, we kind of concluded that it was, and I think I did some research afterwards. It was kind of, it's kind of an arbitrary thing because there is not one definite sea level, actually. So I think a committee got together somewhere, you know, many years ago, like in <laughs> England, and, well, just established what was, you know, I mean, that's like establishing... Um, you know, Greenwich Mean Time or something. I mean, it's it's they didn't have to pick Greenwich, but they did. But it's a similar kind of thing, I think, with sea level that they just pretty much established a a datum. You call it a datum, that a standard datum that everybody was going to use from there on, therefore. So, yeah, yeah, it's kind of unique. Okay. Well, thanks for talking. Okay. Thanks for... All right. Well, I wish I could have done better, but... Thanks for... <laughs> I always like to do better. You did your part. Okay. You, 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 you made... You uh, allowed me to be a writer, and that's why there's a book, so... Hey, ter- terrific. <laughs> the best I can do on an extemporaneous uh, uh, fashion. We're all... Yeah. <laughs> We're all doing our best. Chapter 5. If indeed I have failed at life, I conclude. Might as well check myself into a place that feels like a drug or alcohol rehab center. All the normal methods of being okay with myself aren't working. Even a spontaneous trip across the country, and so it has come to this. A Vipassana Meditation Center in Onalaska, Washington. The drug I'm addicted to is impossible love. Scratched out in dozens of unsent love letters. The thing about impossible love is that even when you are physically alone, you have the comfort of your own delusional beliefs. Those give a shape to the world, but when you start to let go of those delusions, everything feels empty and inert, like Frankenstein's monster without the lightning. check in, they divide us into groups of men and women, making it feel a little like a prison. On top of that, I have to turn my phone and laptop in at the front desk. From this point onwards, I won't be allowed to talk, read a book, write anything down, use any technology, or do anything to distract myself from the task of learning. Vipassana meditation, a very old and arduous technique that requires complete attention to the smallest sensations occurring in your body. They say the proper way to learn it to devote 10 days of your life to it. The majority of my fellow students are older than I am. 
since all we are going to do is meditate, eat, and sleep, and we'll have no contact with the opposite sex, it's already clear that most of the men are going to stay in pajamas the whole day. Living in Portland already feels like wearing pajamas all the time to me, so I've decided to wear chinos, which I quickly discover I have a tendency to make my legs fall asleep during meditation. A few bold deer hang around the campus probably because the people are so quiet and unthreatening. My first morning, I find myself just a few feet away from one of them, reveling in the gentle grace of the natural world, feeling like I'm becoming closer in temperament to these wild animals by learning to meditate. When the deer bends its knees and lets out a loud gush of piss, we gather for group meditations three times a day in the big hall. We're each assigned our own cushion on the floor where we can assemble blankets and foam blocks into whatever arrangement makes us comfortable. At every session, I experiment building up a padded throne throughout the day, then tearing it down. We're listening to the recorded voice of a man named Goenka. A former Burmese businessman who in the 1950s had been stricken by migraines. No doctor could help him, but he stumbled on a colony of monks who had kept a meditation technique alive for centuries. After a 10-day session with the monks, Goenka's pain went away. They told him he had learned a technique developed by the Buddha himself 2,500 years ago. Goenka quit his job and devoted himself to spreading this lost practice, first to the people of India, and then to the world, and that's how Vipassana meditation came to Onalaska, Washington. Meditation itself is simple but not easy. I can see why it fell out of favor with people for two millennia. The first three days of the course we're supposed to observe the sensation of our breath as it comes out of our nostrils. Three times a day, a hundred of us gather in the hall and breathe. Just breathe. Then we head back to our rooms to practice breathing on our own. We wake up at four in the morning and go to sleep at nine, those of us who are able to sleep. Each moment on its own is not unpleasant, especially compared to moments in my life that have been stressful or painful. I'm just sitting here on a pillow, focusing on my nose, but my brain, that ceaseless machine, won't let it be that simple. I think about time all the time and how far into the hour I am, about how 24 hours from now I'll be in this exact same position again, thinking the exact same thoughts, without access to any of the normal ways of numbing my brain, computers, music, food, I'm just left with my own thoughts spinning around. My parents left the subject of religion undiscussed. When I was growing up, it was just never mentioned. You would think that the binding spiritual practices of the human race would come up at least once in 18 years, but no. As an adult, I appreciate how that gave me no biases against religion. It encouraged me to come to my own conclusions. I used to think that when I died, I would still be aware of everything, but that I would have to get in a coffin underground and lie there in the darkness forever and I wouldn't be able to leave and I would never see my family again. This was a terrifying thought and it was reinforced by the Alfred Hitchcock Presents episode where a woman tries to escape from prison by befriending the gravedigger of the prison cemetery who agrees to put her in the coffin with the next prisoner who dies and dig her up in secret. But then the gravedigger himself dies, leaving her buried alive with his body and her screams at the realization that no one is going to save her go unanswered. 
So I had that to think about as I was trying to sleep, and that thought kept me awake at night, crying big fat tears, until I could calm myself down by thinking that at least I had a little more time before the end. After all, my mother was older than I was, and she was still young, and laughed at dinner parties. my padded throne trying to calm down I find myself wondering if there's any music I've heard enough times that I have every word and every note memorized immediately I think of Paul Simon's Graceland I realize I can just press play in my mind and hear the music roll out and so I do starting with the tumbling accordion and the big bright drums of the boy in the bubble I've always wondered why the person he's singing to in that song is crying he's saying that life is better now that all our troubles are taken care of so why would someone be sad? The first time I heard Graceland, my friend Keith was running for 7th grade class president. We sat in his backyard by the pool, painting campaign signs on butcher paper, listening to his boombox. The simple aspects of the music caught my ear. The playful lyrics and horns of You Can Call Me Owl, the bizarre shrieking female background vocals on I Know What I Know, and the way that same song ends with a rubbery, tremolo bass line that sounds like a big fat man buzzing his lips. This was pop music in the best sense of the term. It was accessible and easy to understand while also drawing the listener into a deeper world. A year later, Keith's brother crashed into a brick wall and died, just like that. I went to the wake and looked at his body in the casket, his skin was such an odd color and he was dressed so nicely in a suit that I couldn't help but wonder, why do people do this to dead bodies? It certainly helped to reinforce my suspicion that he was still inside his body, sleeping. His body must have still had some sort of life in it, otherwise why would they treat it so well? At the wake I held his mother's hand, she told me that I shouldn't be afraid to come over to the house and play because it would be best if everything went on as normal. She kept squeezing my hand, and I promised I would. I don't know exactly why, but I never did go over to their house to play again. For the most part, I was a happy kid, and into my teens, I was content to play board games with my parents on Friday nights. Then one day, in Mr. Gribsko's chemistry class, I was sitting next to a pretty red-haired girl named Alice. What do we know, and what are we looking for, Mr. Gribsko asked the class every time we started a new problem. This time around, I pretended that I didn't understand the problem, so I could go to Alice's house for a study group and try to make her laugh, and that was the end of the peaceful, naive happiness. Problem only becomes a problem when you don't know the answer to either one of Mr. Gribsko's questions. about how certain atoms are unstable until they pick up the right amount of electrons. Alice was one of triplets, and when I went to her house, I entered a world full of stuff I had never considered. She and her sisters baked their own bread, they burned incense, and they listened to records, final records, 
by bands like the Velvet Underground, music that I'd never heard before. The world opened up to me, and unfortunately an open world looks a lot like an endless void. I had thought that the world existed on tracks that were already laid down. You bought your bread in a store, and it tasted the same every time. Now I had seen that there was no limit to what bread could taste like, but this meant I was facing actual choices for the first time in my life, which meant that there were wrong choices. That's when I first started feeling depressed. I read about Taoism and started listening to Pink Floyd. The I Ching has 64 iterations, so I painted a chessboard with one hexagram for every square on the board. Even as I got sadder, I always thought that more thinking would untie the knot, that after I had solved a few more equations, I could get out of the twisted corridors and find myself in a wide-open meadow of happiness again. This has been Nick Jaina time. Today I read three chapters from my book, Get It While You Can, from Perfect Day Publishing. All musical accompaniment written and recorded by me. Theme music by Richie Green. What you heard today is what I do live around the world 150 nights a year. My book is available online, along with tour dates at nickjaina.com. That's N-I-C-K-J-A-I-N-A.